John 5, starting there in verse 1, it says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm, going, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. I will stop there. Great story here. Powerful little narrative. We'll have a prayer, uh, and then we'll look at a few points from this text. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, uh, we thank you. We thank you that you have sent your son, that, that he put on uh, flesh, and that he dwelled among us, God. And we pray that as we look at these signs, God, that, that you know, as we, as we prayed before, God, that you bolster our faith. And specifically today, God, as we look at this text, God, help us uh, to see in our hearts and minds, you know, any hint, any, any, uh, any niggling bit that, that, that leans towards unbelief, God, that, learn, that leans towards turning us inward, God. Help us to be a people that fix our eyes on your Son. Help us in this pursuit. Pour out grace and mercy on us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, it's a really cool, uh, cool story. It's a pretty famous one, and it's, it's got, got some cool elements that, that we'll dig into. Uh, but before we get there, it's, it's one of these cool times in the gospel as well where you read uh, about a place or a location, and if you go to Jerusalem, you can see it. Right? You can see that the archaeologists there have, have uncovered you know, these, these covered colonnades that, that existed there. Um, you know, oops, sorry, too fast. Technical problems per usual. All right? And that's kind of a cool thing, right? To be able to, to, to see the scriptures come alive. To know that this is not, you know, John's not, you know, writing centuries after these things took place. You know, these were, these were locations that were real and tangible locations. And a lot of times the gospel writers give these locations because so people can even go and look at it themselves and see for themselves. And this is one of them. There was one last week. Jump backwards there in John chapter 4, uh, verse 51. And if you're reading a more literal translation, it says there in that text we looked at last week, uh, you know, when the royal official hears the, 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 the command uh, from Jesus that his son will live, uh, it says there in verse 51, as he was going down, right, which is kind of a weird way of phrasing it. But he's actually, geographically, that's exactly what he was doing. The trip from where he was to where his son was, was downhill. Right in the Bible, the Gospels are chock full of these kind of examples that you know, really show us that, hey, when you read the Scriptures, these are not just concocted stories. These are not just myths 
that have been made or stories that sound good and became popular. Uh, and so they became you know, part of the scriptures. No, no, th- this is reality. These are historical narratives. These, these events actually took place. You know, and as Peter himself says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And it's the time, you know, I just want to, before we get into the story, we need to be reminded of these things. Yeah, when we read the scriptures here, these are real things, real events uh, that took place in the real world. Amen? But with that, good old Blaze here, right, he has a word of warning about this stuff. Right? People arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Right? By attractive there, he's not saying like, aesthetically beautiful. He's saying, look, there are deeper motives in the human heart that often determine whether we believe something or we do not believe something. Right? I've put up a quote before by this famous atheist that's a modern-day thinker uh, who, who named Thomas Nagel, and he says, he says, look, it's not that I don't believe in God. He goes, I don't want to believe in God. Because if there is a God, then that has implications on my life. I can't just do whatever I want to do. Right? And the ancient writer Blaze is essentially saying the same thing. That, hey, look, when it comes to belief, yes, those archaeological things, those are helpful. But we've got to understand there's more happening beneath the surface. That unbelief, a lot of times, is not simply because you don't have enough evidence. The Bible has actually made clear that God has presented sufficient evidence in creation itself to produce faith. But as we see in this text, there are deeper things at work in our hearts that often cause us to remain in unbelief. Right? Now, this is an interesting thing because as we've been looking at the various signs, the sign's purpose is to produce faith. And we've seen this. As we've looked at water or the wine, we saw the disciples who, who knew actually what had happened. They see the sign, and it produces belief, and it produces life. We saw it with the royal official in the healing of his son. Right? He had faith. He sought after Jesus. Jesus gives him the word that his son will leave. He, he goes home, finds his son uh, is, is well and alive, and he and his whole household believe. And so we've seen here in two stories, right, two different ways in some sense that people come to faith. That the disciples saw the sign of the water and wine and believed. The royal official didn't see the sign, and he believed. But here John does something with these signs and that everyone involved sees it and doesn't seem to believe. They're confronted with an obvious sign. A, a, an invalid healed 38 years in his condition. Now he's walking around. And yet what do we see in the story? It's not faith, but unbelief and a broken iPhone. All right? And so that's what we're looking at today, right? Barriers to belief. And we're going to look at two aspects that often create barrier, right? Both being inwardly focused. Self-pity, which is a hard one because it comes and grows in the roots of suffering, and self-righteousness. Right? And we're going to look at how these things then can block out faith in our life. Right? John Piper in his book, Desiring God, talks about how these two things, right? boasting, which is self-righteousness and self-pity, he says, look, boasting is the response of pride to success, and self-pity is the response of pride to to suffering. All right, you guys follow that? Self-righteousness is a response of pride to success, right? If our, if our heart is full of pride and we have success, we attribute that success to our greatness. 
Our great wisdom, our great personality, our charisma, whatever it is, our work ethic, it becomes something that puffs us up with pride. But if we're also chock full of a heart full of pride and we encounter suffering, self-pity can then begin to grow. And that can begin to take root, and that's a dangerous thing in and of itself. If boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of strong, self-pity is the voice of the pride in the heart of weak. And so we'll look at these two things here, the self-pity and self-righteousness, and then we'll finish on a positive note. Amen? (laughs) Right? Because those are a little bit confronting. Before we dive in, though, to the self-pity side, there is reality that does slap us in the face with this story. I mean, 38 years this guy has suffered. And it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting scene. A lot of times when I read this text, and I've even preached on this text before, the question of, man, why this guy? All right? I mean, Jesus comes into an area where it was, you know, by, if, if, you, if you look at the footnote in your scripture, right, you may notice there is no verse 4. All right? Now, the reason there's no verse 4 is some later manuscripts add in that that pool there would kind of bubble and, you know, much later manuscripts said it was like an angel came down and stirred it, right? And that's not in your Bible, it's in a footnote, because the, the earliest manuscripts don't have that. But in some accounts, what probably was happening there, it was, it was, a, it was maybe a freshwater spring, uh, which, you know, even modern day people, uh, what do we often like to soak in is hot tubs. Uh, I got a free hot tub the other month, thanks to Stefan's ingenuity and being able to figure out how a hot tub fits in the back of a ute. And he did a great job of that. If you ever need anything moved, he's your man. Just make sure you take it or he'll take it, right? <laughs> full disclaimer, right? You know, but, but there's a sense of, hey, being into uh, stirred up water, bubbly water, man, it soothes the pain, right? Maybe that was what this was in the ancient world. And, you know, so this guy is there, but he's not alone. I mean, the crowd, you know, the text says that there's a crowd of people there. There's a lot of people. Even as Jesus begins to have a discussion with this guy, he's saying, look, I can't even get in. Just, you know, I mean, that's interesting. That's probably a pretty big crowd. First in, best dressed is apparently how it worked. You know, but nonetheless, man, this guy's life, that's challenging. I mean, a lot of you, not me anymore, I used to be able to say, I haven't been alive that long. Now I'm 42 and I can't use that anymore, right? But a lot of you haven't even been alive 38 years. I mean, imagine that. 38 years. Suffering. I've watched Veronica suffer for a few months with a hurt back, and I get sympathy pains in my back just watching her. I mean, 38 years, though. I mean, imagine that. Imagine if for 38 years you saw Veronica hobble in every Sunday. Like, oh, my. How would your heart not melt? It's legitimate suffering. You know, why did Jesus choose that guy? You know, we're not told. But we're again reminded that, hey, these signs are not arbitrarily chosen. I mean, he doesn't heal everyone. He encounters a place where there are needs literally all over the room, and he only heals one. And when you dig into this guy, it's not like this guy had anything special. He doesn't even seem to understand who Jesus really is. Some commentators say maybe it's a reference to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 5.14, Moses writes that the Israelites uh, basically waited 38 years for an entire generation to to, to die off who had been filled with unbelief. Maybe it's, maybe it's pointed at that. Maybe this guy was the worst of the worst. And Jesus is trying to make a point about, you know what, if he can heal that guy, you know what, your problems really are nothing. And, and offering perspective. Maybe it is that. Or maybe it's just this general idea of, man, that's life. Life is hard. Life contains suffering. 
The Bible doesn't shy away from that, though many people choose to not believe in God because of suffering. The Bible actually confronts that is, that is woven into the fabric of this life is death and hardship and suffering. You know, last week we had a funeral for Joel's dad as he passed away. This weekend got a call from Alfred. His dad passed away. Last year my dad passed away. A brother-in-law passed away. And life is hard, guys. Life is full of suffering. If you haven't suffered yet, you will. That's a guarantee. It is inevitable. It is inescapable. And the Bible confronts that head on with that reality of suffering is real in this life and our world is chock full of it. Earlier today I sat in a Bible study and we read Romans 8 talking about how all of creation groans. Groans under this frustration that, that it is subjected to of death and decay. Try as we may. Modern medicine can throw everything it has at all the resources, all the money, all the latest techniques, all the latest treatments. You will decay. You will die. That's part of life. And here we see this great suffering confronting us straight in the face. It's an interesting thing, though, with suffering. You know, the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon says that the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. That two people can endure the same suffering and one be, grow, you know, one be changed and grow through that suffering and end up closer to God. And the other actually rebel against God and end up further from God. Right? That the same event can produce two different outcomes. And if you've gone through suffering, you, you, you probably know, and if you are going through suffering, hope you do learn today that that is a, a, a difficult time in life. But you also must be careful because it presents some unique temptations to sin in some special ways. You know, here we begin to see this get drawn out by Jesus. I mean, there in verse 6 of our text, it says, When Jesus saw this man, this man that had been an invalid for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him a question that at face value we think is pretty stupid, don't we? I mean, someone in that kind of condition, someone that had been experiencing that level of suffering, to ask him, hey, you want to get better? Like, Duh. But maybe Jesus is trying to show us something. Maybe Jesus wants to draw something out here to make sure we see it clearly. Jesus poses this question, do you want to get well? It's such a probing question. Now we get to see the guy's response in a minute, but it's, I think it's so interesting. You think, man, well, this guy's mind almost seems like it just begins to race. Right? But it was. It was a sifting question. And Jesus often did this. We talked about this a little bit last week. If you weren't with us, hop on the you know, podcast, you can listen to it. But this idea of Jesus often you know, pushes us, right? I mean, the royal official comes, tra travels 30 kilometers on foot uphill to see Jesus, and, and Jesus rebukes him, basically. Unless you people see signs, you'll never believe. And they go, oh, man, that's kind of hard. But Jesus is pushing us to, hey, we've got to be, gotta be an anti-fragile people. We've got to be able to push through hard times. And maybe that's what Jesus is trying to do with this guy as well. You know, we're going to talk here about self-pity, but self-pity starts with pity. The virtue of showing sympathy, seeking understanding. But there's a danger in the midst of it. Pity about our own lives can turn us inward. 
It can diminish our compassion for others and make selflessness much harder to come by. You know, here we see this guy respond to Jesus' question with excuses in a sense. And they're sad excuses and perhaps they're true. That he has no one to help him into the pool when the water is stirred. And even when he does have help or even when he is putting in effort, someone gets in there before him. His response is basically, I have no one to help and I always lose. The words that come out of a heart of despair. I have no one to help and I always lose. This guy was finding himself in a place where he expected more from his environment than his environment was willing to give. Think about that. He was expecting more from the people around him than he was ever going to get from the people around him. And, you know, oftentimes we see this in other people. Right? If you've ever been around someone whose life has challenges and hardships, and again, I'm not diminishing those challenges or diminishing those hardships, but it begins to be a, a scenario where that person almost can become a black hole. But it doesn't matter the support you throw at it. It doesn't matter the resources you try to give. It doesn't matter how much you, you try to, to, to help alleviate the suffering. It will never be enough. And the reason it becomes never enough it's because self-pity has taken root. And it's turned the person inward. And it begins to be all that they can see. You know, one commentator says that even for this guy, maybe it's not even as simple as does he want to get well. It's more of him even counting the cost on what would happen if he got well. One commentator says, look, an Eastern beggar often loses a very good source of income if he is healed. And this may, maybe that's what's playing, but... Is it, you know, we may not be getting financial gain from our suffering, but if you have suffered and you have fallen into self-pity, you do actually begin to know socially how to use that for your advantage, don't you? I mean, it's very easy to justify sins. Oh, having such a hard time, I deserve to do X. Or man, I've had such a difficult week, let me reward myself by doing Y. And we begin to rationalize and justify sins under this banner of suffering. And suffering is a powerful excuse. It's one that's difficult to push back against. You know, maybe if you're suffering and you have a, have a rough marriage, maybe you don't really want your spouse to treat you as well as you think they, you deserve. Because if they did that, then you'd lose the major source of self-justification for your sinful behavior. Right? Maybe you don't really want people to stop criticizing you because if you did, if they did stop, then you would lose that feeling of superiority that you've become, begin, begun to love that comes from those, you know, that sweet bitterness that you can feel. Self-pity often says I'm right because I've been wronged and then proceeds to justify a whole host of other selfish behaviors. Eugene Peterson in his book In Earth and After in Earth and Altar, he says that, that we have beca perhaps become the most self-pitying populace in all of human history. Think about that for a second. We have become perhaps the most self-pitying populace in all of human history. I mean, Australia is notorious for rooting for the underdog, and there's some goodness in it. But our culture has gotten wrapped up in this whole concept of, of, of victimhood is like the highest level of virtue. And like we talked about last week, that is, that is the opposite of what we actually need to have as Christians. Right? We are meant to be people who grow and thrive in the midst of suffering. Yeah. But feeling sorry for ourselves has been developed into an art form. 
The whining and the sniveling that wiser generations ridiculed with satire has been given bestseller status among us. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful when times are hard that we don't allow self-pity to grow in our hearts. You know, for this guy, it seems like as that self-pity grows, and even as he heals, the, dip, the, the deeper problem becomes more and more apparent. Now the text does say Jesus heals him and then he slips away into the crowd. But this guy, now that he can walk, picks up his mat, has a little exchange with the religious leaders of his day, which we'll talk about in a second. But then, you know, what's he doing? Jesus tracks him down later and says this to him, right? And most parents will love this one. Right? Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I mean, that kind of sounds like Jesus is threatening the guy. Right? And parents sometimes you think, Man, you're crying about that. Wait till, I, you, know, wait till you get what's coming. You know? There's a sense of, man, uh, maybe that's what he's doing. Maybe not. I think Jesus is probably just talking about hell. The punishment to come. I mean, it's a remarkable thing, though. You think 38 years... This guy has not been able to get up and walk. And now that he's walking, and what's he doing? Almost seems like first off, he go, go indulge. And we may think, gosh, that's crazy. But you think, hold on, no. If self-pity had taken root in his heart, then selfishness is there. Right? The motive is there. All that's needed is opportunity. And now that he can walk again, opportunity is on the tables. Right? And so going and living for self... Being turned inward, that's, that actually is a pretty logical step. It's a pretty logical next step for what happens in his life. And all of it is about him being turned inward. And it's one of those remarkable times in the New Testament where Jesus heals someone where the person has seemingly no faith. Even as the religious leaders ask him, who, who made you well? The no. Who told you to pick up your mat and walk? I don't know. He only knows later on after Jesus rebukes him. And even then, it's almost like he's a tattletale, dobbing in Jesus, going back to the, hey, it was Jesus. He's giving you a hard time about sin. You guys go handle him, right? It does kind of read like that. You think, man, well, what's happening? Well, he's inward. And when we get turned inward, guess what goes right out is faith. That's why the psalmist says, look, the pride, the proud in heart and mind, there is no room for belief in God. There's no room for faith because it's all about self-reliance. It's all about me. And again, I'm not downplaying suffering. And if you are suffering, man, that, that's challenging. And there are lots of biblical resources for how to navigate that. But are, 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 we, are we taking advantage of that? We've got to stop and think about that. Secondly, one of the barriers to, to, to belief is not just self-pity, but even more scary and more applicable to us, perhaps, is that of self-righteousness. You know, this takes place, and I don't, I don't know how well-known this guy was. But 38 years is a long time. I don't know if the Jewish leaders knew him, had seen him. There's a crowd of people in there. Maybe they didn't. But it's an interesting thing here we see from the religious people of Jesus' day. The day that that happened was the Sabbath. And when they see the guy, what they see is not a transformed man. It's not somebody suffering relieved. They don't see him as Jesus saw him. They see him and immediately think, hey, you're breaking the rules. And it's a stark contrast, right? Jesus sees him lying there, you know, through asking around or, or maybe just supernatural knowledge. He learns how long the guy has been there. 
And, and he's clearly moved to compassion, to help. The, the religious people saw him, and their response is, the law forbids you from carrying your mat. The text is trying to show us something. All they could see was a man carrying the mat. All they could see was a man breaking their rules. Now the reality is, they think it's God's law they were breaking, but it wasn't. It was their interpretation and way far down the road of application perspective of what the law said. Yes, the Old Testament law did talk about you know, maintaining the Sabbath. But the Jews of Jesus' day had divided that command of, hey, don't work on the Sabbath into 39 different categories of, of potential areas in your life where you could work. Now, 39, okay, that's, is that manageable? Maybe. If you're an excellent multitasker, if you like charts, flow charts like Scotty, yeah, maybe you can manage that. But those 39 categories were then broken down under each category into hundreds of different applications. That's a lot of rules. That's a lot to remember. That's a lot to think about. And they look and they see this guy, and that's all they see. They look and they see the problem and how this guy is living. And it stems from this mentality they had that outward conformity to their rules mattered a great deal more than inward conversion. And you read the Gospels, and I think, Jesus, I think it's safe to say, especially in Mark's Gospel, Jesus goes to great lengths to expose this kind of hypocrisy. You know, in Mark's Gospel, there's an account of a man there with a withered hand uh, that the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had essentially put in the synagogue there. Uh, and Jesus has the guy stand up and heals him there on the Sabbath just to stir things up, to draw out into the light. Hey, they have this upside down. They give great stock to the outward conformity, but give little notion or little atten uh, or, uh, appreciation for what Jesus had just done in this man's life. And it's a dangerous thing that begins to happen. When we begin to operate this way as religious people, we begin to see this, the, the world through a lens of judgmentalism. And that blinds us. Even when you think about us as a church, one of the things I love about us as a church is we have great devotion to the Scriptures. We're a people of the book. We, we read the Bible uh, every, you know, every Sunday when we gather, we, we, we read the text and we build a, a lesson from the text. And that's awesome. When, when people first come in, we encourage them, hey, let's do Bible studies. Let's build the foundations of your faith from the Scripture. We, we are people rooted and established in the Word. That's awesome. That's awesome. But there's a, there's a soberness we need to have, though, is that that strength opens us up to becoming a lot more like the Pharisees. A lot more like the teachers of the law. And we can look at the religious world and we can judge them all day on how they will throw out truth under the banner of love. And that also is wrong. And that also is a dangerous you know, extreme. We're not in danger of that, guys. Maybe some of us are. I, I don't know. I don't know everyone exactly in the room of what you're doing. But I do think, man, as a group, what are we more at risk of? Is, is of this. Which is blind judgmentalism. You know, and this is a dangerous thing. You know, jump a little bit further down beyond the text we've read. You know, because the Jewish leaders, the, the, the rabbis of the generations that even precede, you know, they, this, this 39 categories with hundreds of subcategories, 
This was actually a deeper thing they had going that was very flawed. They were creating all these structure, all this scaffolding on which they could climb to feel good about their relationship with God. To feel like they were good enough in the eyes of God. And Jesus here rebukes them in verse 39 to 40. Read with me. He says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. And he's not saying, hey, well, don't diligently study the scriptures. That's not, that's not his point. His point is, hey, you guys diligently study the scriptures, but your approach is wrong. You're studying them and you're, and you're digging into them and you're trying to classify all these forms of, hey, how can I actually keep all this law, a law that is impossible to keep? That's why Jesus kind of shatters that categories and the subcategories in the Sermon on the Mount. Where he takes the commands. You've heard this said? Well, here's the heart. You've heard it was said, don't murder? Well, well, guess what? If you have hatred, you've done it. You've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. Well, if you lust, you've done it. He's shattering their categories of that, trying to convict them and help them to see that in reality, in God's sight, men are lawbreakers. But because they had this rules-based approach in their own life in regards to God, they began to apply that to everyone they came in contact with. That's why Jesus, you know, later on in Matthew's gospel, chides them, hey, Pharisees, you, you travel over land and sea to make a single convert, and when you do, you make them a worse hypocrite than yourself. I mean, think about that. That's pretty, that's pretty good dedication. And yet Jesus is saying, hey, you're actually making the person worse off. Why? Because they're constantly straining out gnats and swallowing camels. Making all this scaffolding and trying to feel good about themselves, and they can't. Because they won't come to Jesus. They won't humble themselves before Jesus. They valued outward conformity rather than inward conversion of their heart. That's why they were caught up in hypocrisy constantly. Because they tried to make the outside look really good. Because deep down they knew the inward was full, was full of trash. Full of rubbish. That's why they treat this man as they treat them. But the scary thing is, is it doesn't stop there. Further down in our text, verses 41 to 45... Or 41 to 44. You know, Jesus says of them, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept them. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now, when we get stuck in this outward conformity, we become so people-focused. And it's about looking good in front of other people. And then when you find someone who praises you and is positive towards you, you really like that person because that's just bolstering what you're already feeling in your heart and what you're already wrestling to try to have in your own heart. And so you end up in a scenario where you care actually a heck of a lot more about what everyone else thinks about you and very little about what God thinks. Because if you actually stop and begin to think about what God thinks, what you realize is, man... Everything I do, all my thoughts, all my attitudes in my heart are laid bare before the eyes of him to whom I must give account. That this hypocritical game we try to play, it's, it's futile with God. You can play hide and seek all you want with him. He, he's, he can see everything. He knows everything. But you see what Jesus is saying there. Part of the reason they don't believe is because they're so people-focused. So consumed with pleasing people and being praised by people that they have no ability to seek praise from God. 
Now you think about this self-righteousness, what is it doing? It's doing the same thing as self-pity does. It's turning them inward, self-absorbed, self-consumed, and all the interactions with those outside are all garnered by those principles of self. And so their faith, this idea of looking outside themselves, is terrifying. Because their faith is all rooted in themselves, hence them being full of unbelief. A.W. Tozer drives this point home that encompasses both of these aspects that we're talking about, both self-pity and self-righteousness. He says, this labor, the labor of self-love, is a heavy one indeed. Think for yourself whether much of your sorrow has not arisen from someone speaking slightingly of you. As long as you set yourself up as a little god, to which one must be loyal, there will be those who will delight to offer an affront to your idol. How then can you hope to have inward peace? The heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight, to shield its touchy honor from the bad opinion of friend and enemy, will never let the mind have rest. And I love that quote. I love this idea, this labor of self-love. It's heavy. I mean, self-pity, it just, it, you can see it. It just turns this guy inward. It just isolates him from the world around him. And it has that compounding effect, right? The more you turn inward, the more you become that black hole of gobbling up all the resources around you, the less people actually try to help you. And so then the more bitter you become towards the world and the more full of just self-reliance you become. And you don't look. You don't look outward. And faith begins to evaporate. And it's the same with that self-righteous approach. I mean, the more you, you try to labor in it and it just consume with the self-love and you, uh, you know, Outward, outward behavior trumps everything and people praise you. That's what's most important. And well, hey, what if someone looks at me and they don't see the value in me? So then I need to make sure I, I clear up that person's perspective of me so that they think of me as I think of me because if they don't think of me as I think of me, that's going to torment me. My gosh, that is laborious. That will make you weary. And it'll make you deeply, deeply filled with unbelief. You know, what's the solution? What's the solution to these barriers of unbelief that we see in this text? You know, it's pretty simple. You know, here in Matthew 11, Jesus appeals. He says, come to all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, here as we look at the third sign, we, we see this same principle again of the simplicity of building faith in Jesus. I mean, there at the changing of the water to wine, Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. The commands he gives are, are counterintuitive. Fill up dirty water, take it to the, your boss, drink up. There's great wine. I mean, that doesn't make any sense, but they do it. They do it. Their lives change. They get a glimpse of the glory of the Messiah that's come. You know, with the royal official, he's traveled all that way, begged for healing. Jesus rebukes him and then tells him, you can go, your son will live. With no other guarantees, it says, the text says he took Jesus at his word and he went. And even in our text, this, this principle is magnified. Because you have a guy that's, that's not like the servants. I mean, they're not, the servants are operating off of Mary's faith a little bit. They're influenced by that, okay? She says, do whatever he tells you. Okay, we'll do it. All right? The, the, the royal official, he's motivated by great desire for his dying son. 
you know, he takes Jesus' word. Jesus meets him halfway with news of sons. And the faith grows and the whole household believes. But here we see a man become whole who doesn't know who Jesus is. And even after he's healed, doesn't even seem to really have much faith. And maybe that's the point of the story. Maybe it's the point of the sign. I mean, Jesus' power is so great. Just obey him. I mean, 38 years that guy had suffered, and Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Which is kind of, man, that's a difficult question. And he rattles off excuses. And then Jesus says, hey, stand up, take up your mat, walk. And the guy does it. He obeys, even though you can see in his heart he doesn't really want to. It's not like he's saying, okay, I believe you. Help me overcome. There's none of that. He just obeys. And healing comes to his life. You know, Jesus' appeal here, even in this text we just read, I mean, this, this weary and burdened life of self-love. If you find yourself wrapped up in it, man, make a decision today, lay it down. The yoke of self is, is, is not a bearable yoke. It cannot, it will not ever deliver what you are seeking. Lay it down. I mean, it is a conditional lay down, right? Lay your yoke down and take on Jesus. That means you're going to obey him. That means he's going to call the shots. He's going to direct where you're going to go. He's going to choose the steps. He's going to set the pace. He's going to set the direction. But man, he's going to help. And it takes simply a heart that's willing to obey. And my appeal to us today is to see this sign and see the power simply of obedience. Not to yourself, not to your will, to your your obedience to Jesus. And then when we do that, man, we open up a changed life. That obedience isn't going to justify you, but it's going to enable your faith to grow. And it's going to help you to understand that Jesus is who he claims to be. And later on in chapter 7 and chapter 8, Jesus will lay out the same formula. You want to know the truth? You want to know whether he really comes from God? Obey his teaching and see what happens. I mean, time and time again, I see that. You study the Bible with, with, with people who don't have faith, who have come from non-Christian backgrounds, uh, you know, and they, they can read the scriptures all they want, but until they actually start putting it into practice, it's like, it's like pounding into a wall. There, there is no change. And then lo and behold, one day, a little bit of humility creeps in there, and you, and you actually do what he says. You take that yoke up on you, and, and, and you begin to obey, and all of a sudden, it's like the, the veil is lifted. Their eyes are opened. And they're like, finally doing what you've been talking about for years and years. But there's such simplicity in it, which can be a stumbling block to our pride. My appeal is to lay down that pride today and make a decision to obey. And when we do that, our lives can be radically changed, just as this man's was. Amen? Let's have a prayer, and then we'll stand and sing one final song. You know, Father, we thank you for your gracious son, God. We thank you for his eyes of compassion, God, as he saw that man in need and he was willing to meet that need, God. And it's comforting to know that you are a God who is always at work, always looking to make us whole. A God that is willing to, to seek us out, to search for us and to find us, God. But God, we pray you help us, God. Help us to avoid the, the, the barriers to faith, God. If we're suffering, God, help us to not fall into self-pity. Help us to not become a self-absorbed, self-consumed, and self-focused person, God. 
Help us to fix our eyes on you, God. And for those of us, God, who have been following you for a long time, God, we pray that you help us to avoid the traps that that of the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law fell into, God. Help us to read the scriptures and not see even them with judgmental eyes, but to instead see ourselves in them, God. To see how the same ways our hearts can try to you know, find ways to justify ourselves and rationalize our own behaviors and to bolster ourselves and to, to, to turn that, those faithful eyes not, not on you, but on ourselves and our works and our deeds, God. Help us in this pursuit, Father, to never lose sight of your Son. To be a people that take his yoke upon, him, upon us and learn from him and walk with him, God. Help us, God, to see him as we should and to have faith as we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Let's all stand and sing together.